Well, you mind opening your Bibles to 2 Timothy? 2 Timothy is in the last 40 or 50 pages of your Bible. And if you didn't bring one, we say this every week, but there should be a black one hopefully nearby in the seat rack. You can pull it out. It's page 833. We're wrapping up our series today called Endure. We've been walking through this letter that Paul writes to Timothy from prison, uh, the older Paul to the younger Timothy. And again, we've called this series Endure. You can see the banners up front. We've been going through this series in part because we sense that God wants us to be ready, to get ready, to be prepared for whatever may come. And there may be some really challenging times ahead if you're going to follow Jesus. And so how can, we, how can we be anchored? How can we know what it's like to be grounded if we go through those times? So as we think about that, um, I want to just tell you that we're going to look at 17 verses today. And uh, not going to pay you know, super detailed to everyone, but I'm going to try and give an overview of those verses. And as we come to this section, I just want to um, mention this idea. Uh, way back, the first week, by the way, if you want to look at where we've been in the series, before I forget that, on the back of the notes, you can see uh, those 11 weeks. And uh, the only thing that's missing from that, I, I, I wish I would have fixed this beforehand, is that last Sunday night, if you weren't here, Pastor Brian Schwarberg just gave a very helpful message um, that one of the ways that we can endure is by remembering God's faithfulness. And we sang about that earlier and remembering how he's been faithful. And uh, there were rocks that were passed out and we wrote some of the ways we've seen God be faithful in our lives. And then we built this altar of rocks down here front. And it was just a great reminder. So uh, again, that's one more idea in this series that was shared last Sunday night. Now, years ago, I heard about this man that used to go hospital calling and uh, when he would go hospital calling, he would visit people in their hospital rooms, and he took a bookmark with him. And this bookmark uh, was kind of, it wasn't real, it was kind of messy. It had all these loose threads uh, that were hanging down. And um, so he'd go into the hospital room, and sometimes right before he'd pray with them, he just would show them this bookmark, but he'd show them the string side up. And it was all messy. And he's... People were like, like what, are you, what are you showing me that for? And then he would just quietly turn it over. And on the other side was a finished, beautiful, embroidered uh, bookmark that just said, Jesus is Lord. And uh, th th that stayed with people. They visited because they were going through things that felt like loose ends, messy. Now, I bring all that up because if you were here the first week, we were privileged to have a team of people up here on the platform that were reading the entire letter, all four chapters. They read it out loud for us, and I had a chance to be in all three services. And then in preparation for this series, I've read this letter a number of times. And I remember that day as they read, here's what struck me. I always thought that if I followed Jesus, that after a while, and especially by the time I got to the end of my life following Jesus, that all the loose ends would go away. That all the ducks would start to line up in a row. And that there wouldn't be any messiness left in my life. There wouldn't be any hard-to-understand things in my life. And what I noticed about this letter is that even the Apostle Paul, who had followed Christ faithfully for 30 years, gets down to the last lap of his life, and it's messy. A lot of loose ends. As you're looking at these verses, you're not going to hear, and now everything's fine. 
But you are going to hear some interesting things interspersed in this letter. And it's so personal, so helpful. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read through these 17 verses. I've listed on your notes in the gray box uh, three boxes there. And I just want to mention to you in advance, we're going to read them one, three, and two. I'm kind of messing with your mind a little bit there. Uh, but it's more the order. So I'll read through this passage, and I'll let you know when we come to each one of those so you can read with me, and we'll read it together. So are you ready uh, to follow along with me? Uh, by the way, before we do that, one more thing. Here's what I hope to talk to you about today. This message is called Finishing Well. As we think about enduring, what, what does it take? How did Paul, even though it was messy, how did he finish well? Even with loose ends, how did he finish well? If you're following along in the notes, here's what I want you to see in that first line. To endure and finish well, our lives must have meaning. To endure and finish well, our lives must have meaning. They must have a deep sense of purpose. There must be a reason for us to live if we're going to be able to endure and keep going and finish well. And so I hope you'll see that sprinkled in these last verses of 2 Timothy 4. I'll come back to that. Now, let me read the first phrase in verse 6, chapter 4. Then I'll ask you to read that first gray box with me. I'll give you the cue. Here's what he says. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and, would you read with me? The time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I'll go on. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best, Timothy, to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. Would you read verse 11 with me in that third grade box? Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus and when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Now would you read verse 16 and part of 17 with me? At my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed. He gave me strength so that the message through me might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he sprinkles these greetings. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, the household of Nesiphorus, Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace, grace 
be with you all. Now, as I read these verses, I told you that one of the impressions I had was just how there were still loose ends in Paul's life. I mean, there's, I could just spend the next hour talking about some of these little details that are just so loaded with all these things that make you go, what? Huh? Hmm. And what I hope you'll see is, is that while that's going on, Paul still has this sense of being grounded. And so I thought to myself, you know, how do we, how do we look at all these verses since they're so multifaceted? You know, on top of that, it was Thanksgiving this week, so my time to prepare was even less. And so I just said, Lord, you're going to have to help me how I look at this. And then he reminded me this week that during the sabbatical that you let me go on this summer for three months, I, I told you before, I looked at a timeline, a life planning tool that a man named Donald Miller had put together. And it gave me a chance to look through all the high and low points positive and negative turns in my life. It helped me look at relationships, the relational world I have, helped me look at the different roles I play, and all those things. And, and ultimately, the goal was, is how to live a better story. In other words, what should I give my time and energy to? How has God made me, and what has he ha- allowed happen in my life? So, but Donald Miller, uh, as you walk through this, gives different modules, and in one of them, he explains where this whole timeline that he designed came from. He said that by the time he was 35, he'd already reached his goal to write a New York Times bestseller. And he was actually amazed at how unfulfilling that was compared to how he thought it would be in his life. He thought that that kind of success would make him happy, but he achieved it sooner than he thought, and and he still wondered, huh? And so he said that during that time, he was reading Viktor Frankl. I don't know if you've ever heard of Dr. Viktor Frankl. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, which is still considered one of the top 10 influential books in the United States, sold over 12 million copies. Dr. Viktor Frankl lived back in the time of World War II. He was a psychologist and a neurologist that lived in Vienna, Austria. He was a contemporary of Dr. Sigmund Freud, the famous psychologist. Dr. Freud at that time was saying things that now have had a huge impact on our country, And he said that man's highest search is for pleasure. That basically, man is just a biological animal that lives for pleasure. But Dr. Viktor Frankl said, I I disagree. My assessment of life and the patients I've worked with is, is that man's highest search is for meaning. That actually, when people live for pleasure, they're just masking or trying to distract themselves from the fact that they don't have a fulfilling sense of meaning and purpose. And so he said, as he learned to work with people, he eventually would work with over 30,000 mental health patients there in Vienna, and many of them that had contemplated suicide. And he discovered that he could help many of these people by helping them pursue a meaningful life rather than just a pleasure-filled life. And that as he did that, uh, and his watch, none of those people took their lives. What he did was he said, let me narrow it down to three things. Now, again, I don't know if you know his story. This got tested. He actually would eventually spend time in two different concentration camps, including Auschwitz. And uh, he lost his parents and his wife in those concentration camps. He said they took away the book that he was writing. They took away his wedding ring. And what he discovered there is that They could take away everything except his choice in how he would respond. 
he still could choose what attitude he had towards the things he faced. And he found dignity in that. But he helped people understand that if they would have these three things in their lives, that it would help them at least have a reason for getting out of bed, at least have a reason for living. And that I've listed those three here. You can see them in the notes. The first is a project or task to fulfill. The second is a redemptive perspective on suffering. And the third is a circle of loving relationships, someone to love and be loved by. And he said, when you help people enter into these kinds of approaches to life, what you're doing is you're helping them have a reason to live. They have meaning. They have purpose in their lives. But what I want you to see today is that Paul came to the place where he discovered that no one else could provide these three like Jesus Christ. That you can pursue them in other ways, in other areas, but Jesus Christ is the one constant, the one sure person to trust in. So what I want to do is just show you through this letter how some of these things come out in this end of this letter, okay? And how we can finish well. And as I walk through each one of these, I want you to think with me. Do you have these in your life? And if so, is it through knowing Jesus or is it some way else? So first is a project or a task to fulfill. <clears throat> a project or a task to fulfill. If you look up here on the screen, you'll see Viktor Frankl's quote here. It's an interesting quote. It says, There is nothing in the world, I venture to say, that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is a meaning in one's life. And so as we look at this first one, he said, look, you need a reason to get out of bed in the morning. There's got to be a vision that you're moving towards, something that compels you to keep walking. And therefore, when you have a project or a task to work on, I've talked to a number of people that have said, you know, when I'm going through grief or when I'm going through a hard time, if I have something to work on, if I have something that's ennobling, if I have something to occupy my attention and give myself to, it helps. It makes all the difference in the world. Now, again, what's suggested here is preferably this would be something that would be selfless, that would be bigger than yourself. Some people have tasks and some people go after projects that are incredibly self-promotional or just about fulfilling ourselves. And while those things may have at least a short front-end shelf life of fulfillment, ultimately those will prove fleeting, like being on the New York Times bestseller list. But if you and I have a task or something that's pulling us forward that we're moving towards that's ennobling, that's selfless, that's bigger than ourselves, well then, my goodness, it's a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And notice what Paul says about this if you're following along. Jesus gave Paul a noble task to fulfill. Jesus gave Paul a noble task to fulfill. <clears throat> As Paul starts coming down to the last few weeks and months of his life, he can see the finish line, but what he's saying here in prison is this. Look, one of the great things about knowing Christ is I have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. He has given me a noble task to fulfill. And out to the right, you can read about Acts 9, Acts 26. You can read some of his story of how God met him on the Damascus Road. And Jesus revealed himself right there through a blinding light and through speaking to Paul, who at that time was still called Saul. So now he's writing about this. So what's the task? What is it? Well, he talks about this in Acts 20 as well. If you're following along in the next line, it's to testify. It's to testify 
to the good news of God's grace in Jesus. God's grace in Christ Jesus. If you look up here on the screen, you'll see Acts 20. Here's what it says. In every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Now, that doesn't sound like a reason to get out of bed, does it? Or it sounds like a hard one. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And Viktor Frankl discovered that even in a concentration camp, even if it proved to be a difficult task, that there was something ennobling about still pursuing it in the face of opposition. And Paul is saying that, look, you need to know that this task means hardship. It means being unjustly accused. It means being in this prison, even though I don't deserve to be here, as far as guilt. But know this, that it gets me out of bed in the morning to be able to tell other people about the good news of God's grace that's offered in Jesus Christ has changed my whole world. He said, I used to think that life was about moral attainment. I used to think it was about self-righteous pursuit. And while that sounded like it was all about God, it wasn't all about God and his plan and his purpose. It was about me making God work for me. And I used God. And I now realize that. And so there, even though I was guilty of that, and then I went on to persecute Jesus and his church and imprison people and had them jailed and killed, God met me on the Damascus Road. He reached out to me and he offered me grace. Now, I talked a lot about grace a few weeks ago in the message on 2 Timothy and being strong in his grace. But just to review, grace is God's undeserved favor and kindness to us. It's a gift. God's grace is his riches at Christ's expense. It's his power to live the Christian life. It's something where he helps us day by day, just like he gave the Israelites manna. He gives us the strength, and his grace is sufficient for whatever we face. Those are some of the things we learned about grace. And he said, man, I want to tell other people that they can know the purpose that God has for them, no matter how much they've messed up, no matter how lost they may be, no matter how many other things they've tried. God's good news of his grace in Jesus is available to every person who will humbly receive. And so that changed his whole life. He said, man, I want to make sure I point as many people as I can towards Jesus. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I want to know Christ, serve Christ, share Christ. I want my life to be about Jesus and not Paul. I'm involved, but I ultimately want it to be about Jesus. And notice that he says this, that he had a fight to fight, a race to run, and a faith to keep, if you're following along. He had a fight to fight, a race to run, and a faith to keep. Notice that he, he's, he's basically saying, look, the time of my departure is near. He says in that first verse, verse 6, he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. He says, basically, I'm being offered. The Romans, who were pagan, offered it to their gods. People in the Old Testament would often pour this at the base of the altar as, an, as again, an offering to God. So what he's saying is, look, my life is an offering. I offer myself to God, and I'm being poured out completely. I'm about to die. But he says, you know, my time for my departure's come. My ship's being untied. I'm about to sail into a new chapter. But I have fought the good fight. 
Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of this dark, evil world. This is not a walk in the park. This is a good fight, and it's worth giving ourselves to fighting that the name of Christ may be known in the most beautiful and precious way. But also, it's a race to run, and it is a faith to keep. It's a trust that's been given to us to continue walking in. And he said, you know what? I am running around the bend here, and I'm seeing the finish line. Years ago, I used to run the Abe's Amble at the fairgrounds, this 10K race. You know, it was back when I was in shape. And uh, what happened is, is I remember I'd get to that, that last quarter mile. And if you've ever run it or you've ever been there cheering on someone else, you know that it's right near the grandstand. And there was just something about running down that hill, running in through Happy Hollow and just seeing all that and just going, oh my goodness, I can see the finish line. <laughs> I can't believe I got to do this. And I think Paul's saying that. He's not going, look at me. He's going, his grace helped me fight the good fight. His grace helped me run the race. His grace helped me keep the faith. And I can see the finish line from here. Timothy, come on. Don't give up on Christ. Know he's the purpose and meaning of your life. He will give you a task just like he's given me. And friends, I don't know if you realize this, but you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to be an extra credit Christian to know Christ. When he comes into your life, he may use you as an arrow to point other people quietly, sometimes with the word, but he's going to use you. He has, you have a task. There's a reason to get out of bed. I came to know Christ when I was in high school. So it helped me look at my high school situation differently at that time. And I've noticed that wherever I go, I have to ask myself, what am I going to be about? Am I going to be about trying to let Jesus Christ be honored in this place? Am I going to try and learn and be humble and be teachable wherever I go so that I can know Christ? I can serve Christ. I can share Christ. He's the reason I live. He's given me a race to run. Hebrews 12 says is that there's a race marked out for us. And the way to run it is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Wow. How are you doing? Do you have a task? Do you have a purpose? Do you have a reason for getting out of bed? What is it? Recently, I had a chance to be with a person in our church who, without knowing their whole story, you just need to know, it's one of the more difficult situations I can imagine being handed. They're dying. Their body's wearing out sooner than they thought it would. And they have a family situation that's not turning out the way they thought it would with their kids. At least not yet. They're very troubling and very confusing. A lot of loose ends. And they're trying to do the best they can to understand how to live in this new chapter. And they said to me that in these next few months, with the time that they have left to live... Their goal every day is to encourage at least one person. The reason they get out of bed now is that if they can be used by Jesus Christ to encourage one person, they will have considered that they had a noble task to fulfill. This person has also sometimes during the winter taken brown bags of lunches down to the homeless people that gather around Lincoln Library and uh, they just, again, they just made this a sandwich 
a fruit, a dessert. And they said, you know, God's given them an ability to hang out with people that may be dealing with mental illness issues, as many times homeless people are prone to do because of how difficult it is to live on the streets. And they have a noble task to fulfill. And they're doing it in the midst of loose ends, but it gets them out of bed in the morning. Do you have that? I found that God's given me the spiritual gift of encouragement, so I've just been trying to text at least one other person or email one other person or write one other note to help someone know the strength to keep running the Christian race. You can do that. You can make a difference if you have the task that Jesus wants you to have. Some of you, your parents, the little bambinos that are running around your feet, and it's not easy. It's not, you know, dramatic. It's just daily. But you can do that to the glory of God. Second thing is a redemptive perspective on suffering. A redemptive perspective on suffering. You know, what do I mean by redemptive When something's redemptive, it takes something that's bad, it takes something that's ruined, it takes something that's not right, and it makes it valuable. It makes it worthwhile. It gives it a purpose that it didn't have before. So Frankel said, you know, if I could even help these prisoners understand that the way that they respond to their suffering, that they saw a redemptive purpose in that, he wasn't saying, I just told these, you know, these prisoners, and God's not saying to those of us that are Christians, just say that any bad stuff in your life isn't bad. You know, just put a new spin on it. It's not what, that's not what they're just talking about at all. So I hope no one hears me say that. Friends, there are things going on in this world. There are things that may be going on in your family. There are things that may be going on in your life, your workplace, your school that are not good. They're painful. They're suffering. They're hard. There's no other way to say it. God's not asking you to deny that. But what he's saying is this. Look, you may have your list of hard things. Would you be willing to also start another list where I can write on it the blessings or the benefits that may also be happening at the same time even though you can't see it? Where do I get that? If you look at that verse there, that second gray box, you'd notice he says, everybody deserted me, but the Lord stood by me. And then what does he say? He says this, and the Lord enabled, he took a terrible situation at my pre-trial situation when not many Christians were sure they could stand with me yet. And he helped me not only stand there, stand, but also he helped me get the message out even to the Roman leaders about Jesus Christ. People that were Gentiles with no Jewish background, no understanding of even the Old Testament. He helped me share Christ in one of my worst days of my life. He is so faithful. I thought it was a terrible day, but he helped me see that wasn't the only part of the story. He was doing something else. Paul actually said in his first imprisonment, what has happened to me has actually turned out to advance the gospel. I can't fully explain it, but it's actually given other Christians more courage, and it's helped them follow Christ. But notice, if you're following along in the notes, notice this. First, he says, deserted. He's been deserted. He says that a couple times. Not only with Demas, because he loved this present world, but also at his first defense, no one came to his support, but everyone deserted me. I'm going to explain that a little bit. It does not mean that when he says Luke is with me, that Luke deserted him. 
What that means is because Luke has been such a faithful person, we know that Luke probably didn't get there quite yet. Tychicus, who he eventually would send this letter with to Timothy, hadn't gotten there yet. So most of the Roman Christians that he had met there, either they didn't know him, didn't know about his situation, or they just didn't have the courage to stand with him because they knew it was going to cost them, their family, their business, or something, and they just didn't, they weren't able to come through. So Paul says, look, they, yeah, it's true, they, they deserted me, but the Lord stood by me. May it not be held against them. So if you're following along, deserted, he forgives. He releases, he forgives, and lives for God's glory I love that how verse 18 comes down to this. He goes, to him, to him be glory forever and ever. You know, I've met people that, again, going through unbelievable sickness, tragedy, crisis. And what they've discovered is, is that even though those things take away a lot of things in their lives, there's one thing that they can't take away. And that's their choice to live for the glory of God instead of their own glory. And what they've discovered is that even in a hospital room, if they'll say, Lord, I don't know why you placed me here, but while I'm here, can you show me how to be your witness, to testify to your grace in some way, word or deed? Show me how to live for your glory instead of my own. You know, one of the reasons why so many of us live in fear, because we don't want our glory to be taken away. And God says, you know, again, that stuff's vulnerable. But if you're willing to live for my glory, Paul said, I started realizing there could be something redemptive somehow. His glory could still go forward, even if mine went backwards. The second thing is, opposed, he leaves it to God and does good. He leaves it to God and keeps doing good. Where do I get this? You'll notice that he says that Alexander did great harm to me. (laughs) Man, he, he, he dinged me good. And he opposed our message. So just be aware that if you get here in time, He'll probably oppose yours too. I just want to give you a heads up. And some people think when he says, you know, the Lord will repay him, that he's going, give him a good one, God. No, he's just saying this. He's going, look, I'm not going to try and get vengeance. I'm going to let God decide what he does. The Lord will know how to respond to him. That's between Alexander and God. But for me, I am going to keep doing good. I'm not going to curse it. I'm going to keep doing good. This idea is found in 1 Peter 4.19. One of the other fellow Christians that walked with Jesus said this, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do what, friends? Have you ever met people like this? Just like the person I just talked to you about. They don't understand why they're going through what they're going through with their family or their health. But one thing's for sure, they have found great purpose something redemptive in their pain by doing good, by saying, if I can help somebody as I walk along, if I can do some good in this world that doesn't feel real good right now, then I want to do that. Help me, God, to entrust myself to you, to leave that to you. I, I, my mind tries to figure all that out. I don't understand all of it, but as I leave that with you, show me what I can do. Because right now I'm overwhelmed by what I can't do, but show me what I can do and the good that you and I can do. I, um, you know, this is a subject that I don't feel worthy to talk about compared to what some of you are going through. But if you didn't know this, today is the two-year anniversary of one of our pastors, Pastor Brian and Sarah. Brian Schwarberg, two years ago they lost their twins. Really painful. 
And uh, Brian is actually at Rochester Christian preaching at his parents' church today. He's asked to fill in from time to time. So what a blessing he is. But he said to me recently, he said, man, this book is really helping me. And I've been reading it too, and I don't know if you've ever seen it. But Timothy Keller, who is a pastor in Manhattan, New York City, you want to talk about a place that's cynical about God, and yet he's being one of these voices of reason and also of wisdom that's being respected in our country. And Timothy Keller has also gone through suffering with his family and his own body. And he he calls it walking with God through pain and suffering. And this is for believers and unbelievers alike. This is for people that are trying to figure out what do I do with the suffering in my life? How do I see a redemptive understanding without just being saccharine about it and acting like, oh, well, you know, how do we do that? So Timothy Keller, I'd highly recommend that book to you. The third thing, though, Paul does as he finishes this letter is that you see that he has a circle of loving relationships. A circle of loving relationships. That's the third thing that Viktor Frankl said, that he saw that if you have someone to love, if you have people to love and be loved by, if you're in community, as imperfect as it might be, then you have a reason to live. And I thought about this because, you know, at Thanksgiving time for the last 30 years, we've been encouraging people in our church family. We did it last Sunday night, put the 100, list of 100 things to be thankful for in every chair. We've encouraged everybody that come Thanksgiving time, take time to thank God for at least 100 things. It does something to you. It pushes you past generalities. And so Thursday morning, I, I did that. And as I was looking over my list, I started noticing a pattern. I started noticing that the things I was most thankful for were people. I mean, I'm thankful for material goods and possessions and success and different things like that, but friends, that stuff's going to fade. There's only a few things that are going to last in life, and one of them is people. And Paul gets to the end of his life And while it's confusing, and while there's some loose ends to it, what you'll notice if you read these verses is that there's 17 names, 16 of whom are his friends, one who's an opponent. And he's able to name these people because he's done some miles with them. He's gone through ups and downs with them. He's prayed with them. He's served alongside them. He's discovered what it means to love and be loved. And that's what Christ offers in the church. That's why we talk about ideas like life groups as imperfect as they are. That's why we talk about, are you in some kind of community? Or are you just doing a silo thing? Are you just doing the cocooning thing? Which is so tempting. But what are you doing with your life? Do you have a circle of loving relationships that you're investing in? So notice if you're following along, like Jesus, Paul invests in and loves people. Like Jesus, Paul invests in and loves people. Jesus, the one of the last things he said on the night before he's crucified, he said to his disciples, as I have loved you, now love one another. Pass it on. Give yourself to that. I was intentional about that. You be intentional too. But notice, loving and being loved, if you're following along, brings heartache and joy. Loving and being loved brings heartache and joy. In one of the passages, 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 7 there, it says, look, 
We were overwhelmed by the situation we were facing. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. One of the guys that's named in this letter. When Titus showed up, all of a sudden, my emotional meaning tank went way back up. God used Titus to put strength and courage back into me. And he understood that. But he also talks about Demas, who deserted me to go to Thessalonica. Now, it doesn't say he deserted Jesus, but it does say that he deserted Paul. And if you think about your life, just like when I was thankful for 100 things, you know, the truth is that some of the greatest pain you'll ever know in your life is through relationships too, amen? So it's not just all about all joy and bliss, but it's about heartache and joy. But Paul says, I'm going to take the good along with the bad, the bad along with the good, because I know that overall, even the hard relationships have a redemptive purpose in my life. Even the most difficult relationships, God can still somehow teach me something as I invest in people. And notice this, that C.S. Lewis, the great thinker, once said this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So it's a risk, absolutely. But Paul says, I'd do it again. I would do it again. And I've got these people like Priscilla and Aquila, fellow tent makers that risked their lives for me, like Titus, like Tychicus, who's bringing this letter on and on I could go. Then notice that he makes amends and extends grace. He makes amends and extends grace. Do you notice that verse right above there in the gray box? It says, only Luke is with me. By the way, he doesn't mean bummer. He's just saying, look, I sent all these other guys out on missionary journeys because I want the gospel to go forward. So right now, Luke's the only one with me. But on your way, would you get Mark? Now, Mark had abandoned Paul and Barnabas early in Paul's ministry, his first missionary journey. So Paul and Barnabas had actually had a fight, an argument over whether or not they should take John Mark. And Barnabas agreed to take John Mark, and Paul said, no way, he deserted us, and he took Silas, and they went different directions. Still about ministry, but they had that disagreement. But Colossians tells us, and this letter tells us, that somewhere along the line, Paul humbled himself, and he saw that God was restoring John Mark, so much so that now we have the gospel of Mark in the New Testament, because that was Peter's gospel, and Mark wrote it down. So he helped Peter, and then Paul says, bring Mark, because he's my brother, and he's helpful to me in this ministry that God's given me. Oh, I love that. He makes amends. As far as is possible with him, he tried to put his house in order with broken relationships or bruised relationships. You and I can do that too. And then he extends grace. God extended grace to me. I can extend grace to Mark. I can extend grace to Demas. I can extend grace. But how does he end the letter? Grace be with you all. My life has been from beginning to end grace. Verse one, chapter one, verse two, all the way to the last one, four, verse 22. 
and so is yours, so is mine. You know, I had a mentor who said to me one day, he said, there's really only two things I want the rest of my life. I want to do God's bidding with all my heart. I want to do the task he's given me to do. And I want to do it with people I love. How about you? Do you have a purpose? Do you have a task? A noble task to fulfill? Do you have a redemptive perspective on suffering that's growing because of your relationship with Jesus and what he says in his word? Do you have a circle of loving relationships? You can. Grace is being extended to you in Christ. Meaning and purpose. And that's how we end this if you look, you'll see, Lord, in you alone, we find meaning and purpose to endure. In you alone, we find meaning and purpose to endure. If you close your notes, I just want to show you one last thing. Some people have said, well, what happened to Timothy? What happened in this handoff? Did he go through something hard? Did he make it? Did he keep running? Look at verse 23 of Hebrews 13. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but he writes, I want you to know our brother Timothy has been released. Did Timothy go through anything hard? Yes, he did. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Timothy, who had been known as timidity, discovered the power and love and sound mind that's in Jesus, the grace that can keep you going. So as we end this, I told you we were going to pray, so I'll ask the ushers to come forward now and pass out these cards. And just in case you may not get a card, up here on the screen is just the big idea of this prayer time. Some of you say, well, I'm not a very good prayer. Well, I'll just ask you to pray silently. Just talk to God. Say, God, I don't even know exactly how to pray this, but would you please work in their lives? And here it is, that the people you pray for will find a deep sense of meaning and purpose in Christ alone and be able to endure whatever it is they wrote on the card or whatever it is that they may be going through near you. And you can just pray for a person near you silently if you don't have a card. So we just want to take time to do that. The team and I are going to do that as well. When you get the card, just look at it, look it over, and just silently say, Lord, I want to invest in people. I want to be part of your purpose. Show me how to pray so that someone can endure whatever they may be going through or facing.
Now, I'll just lead us in prayer. If, if you're comfortable doing so, I just invite you to lift your card towards heaven. We'll just corporately as a church family call on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, we don't know about every situation here, but you do. We pray that you will help every person that's in this room to find meaning and purpose in Christ alone and also that they'll be able to endure whatever comes their way with your help and your grace. And we pray you'll help us to fulfill the task you've given us as a church family, to exalt Christ and not ourselves, to be your hands and feet in this world. Thank you for the, entrusting us with that, but help us, oh God, to finish well. In your name we pray, amen.